Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I don't know when you're listening to this, but welcome to episode number 257 of More Than Bread, which is also episode number seven of our series for Lent, Preparing for More. That's the theme. I'm Dan, and I'm your host, your Bible reader and guide. I've been a pastor for 35 plus years, and I know that sounds kind of old, but I started when I was 10. <laughs> Actually, not true. And sometimes it does feel kind of old. But but over the course of those years, I have grown to love the Word of God. Actually, going way back beyond that, I grew up with parents who loved the Word of God, and they taught me to love the Word of God, kept me accountable for reading the Word of God. And, and More Than Bread is a podcast that unabashedly, without embarrassment, says that Scripture is even better than sliced bread. In fact, the title of the podcast comes from something once said in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy and was then quoted by Jesus in the Gospels. The statement was, people shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, the word, the words of God are necessary for life. We, we cannot thrive without the word of God. The word of God brings life. It brings joy. It makes us pause and go, huh, I never thought of it like that. It helps us gain God's perspective on life. It deepens our hope and and points out with gentle conviction when we're headed in the wrong direction. It's a GPS for life. And through it, we hear the voice of God, which in and of itself is simply amazing. So in our series for Lent, we're doing 40 or so episodes, making our way from Ash Wednesday to Easter as a time of preparation for the celebration of the resurrection. And, and to some degree, this whole Lent season is a reminder. This is kind of what it sprung up from over the course of time in the history of the church. It's a reminder of the preparation that Jesus went through in the wilderness. He spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying and fighting evil incarnate and preparing for his calling. And, and all of that is what leads us to the theme of preparing for more. We're preparing for more life and more resurrection power, more of the living presence of Jesus. 40 days preparing for more. For the last few episodes in this one, we've been focusing on those 40 days that Jesus actually spent in the wilderness. And and specifically in the last episode, and again this one, we're pondering a vital part of a good wilderness experience. In fact, let me just pause there because I don't want to give us a false picture of the wilderness. Most, if not all of the time, the wilderness is referred to in scripture. It, It ain't good. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is talking about wilderness experiences, and he writes, but with most of them, he's talking about the Old Testament wilderness time from Egypt to the Promised Land. He says, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of of death and dying. The book of Revelation refers to the wilderness as a spiritual condition of dryness and emptiness, like lost in spirit. Wilderness is a dangerous place, an isolating place. Unless we have the Spirit of God, the very Spirit of God. So let me read again, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 19. You're going to get to the point where you've memorized this passage, but that's okay. That's a good thing for us to do. Just let it soak into our souls. It says, then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time, and he became very hungry. And then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. 
Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. And Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you. They'll hold you up with your their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded again. The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. And then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up to read the scriptures and the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where these words were written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. So Jesus was filled with the Spirit. He was driven into the wilderness. And and what is the wilderness? Man, it is a place that few of us seek, but many of us find. It's a place where we find that the needs of the moment exceed the resources of our capacity. And when our resources are not enough for the needs of the moment, we need something more, right? Preparing for more. We need the power of the Spirit of God. So let me let me start this episode with a ghost story, holy ghost story. Dr. J. Edwin Orr, revival historian, considered the prayer revival of 1857 to be the greatest revival in church history. It began in New York City as a small marketplace prayer meeting, and within six months, 10,000 people were gathering every day over the noon hour for prayer. It moved to Philadelphia, spread throughout the Northeast, and then the whole U.S. before crossing the ocean to Ireland, Europe, and Africa. Conservative estimates are that one million people in the U.S. became Christ followers in less than two years. Some some researchers suggest it was closer to two million. Today, that would be like 10 to 15 million people becoming Christ followers in just a couple of years. The Spirit of God was at work. Dr. Orr shares how the Spirit of God moved at times, even visibly. When sailors came into the harbor of New York City, many of them saw a great light as if a great cloud of blessing hovered over the land and the water. In fact, as ships would draw near to the ports coming within this zone of heaven, ship after ship would dock with stories of sudden conviction and conversion. And one ship, a captain, and and the entire crew of 30 became Christ followers even as they entered into the harbor. The battleship North Carolina was docked in the harbor with about a thousand men. On board were four Christians who agreed to meet with prayer. They were allowed to gather in an unused space on a deck far below the waterline. And so one evening they gathered an Episcopalian, a Presbyterian, and two Baptists. (laughs) Kind of sounds like the beginning of a joke, right? In Dr. Orr's words, as they knelt in the dim light of a tiny lamp, the Spirit of God suddenly filled their hearts with such joy of salvation that they burst into song, and and this strange, sweet strain rose to the decks above, and there it created great astonishment. In fact, their 
ungodly shipmates came running down. They came to mock, but the mighty power of God had been liberated by rejoicing faith, and it gripped them. As they as they walked into the presence of these four men, it gripped them, and in one moment, their mocking laughter was changed into cries of repentance. These big sailors, giants in stature, many of them giants in sin, were, were literally struck down. They knelt humbly beside the four like little kids. A great move of the Spirit started in the depths of the battleship, and night after night the prayer meeting was held and people became devoted to Jesus. Soon they had to send ashore for help and pastors came out to assist. The battleship became a house of God. And and the North Carolina, in God's providence, was a receiving ship, which means that sailors would be stationed there first and then drafted to other ships. So these new Christ followers were scattered throughout the Navy and a holy fire spread rapidly from ship to ship. Wherever they went, a prayer meeting started and people found Jesus. Or writes, Ship after ship left the harbor of New York for foreign seas, each carrying its band of rejoicing converts, and the fire of God went to the ends of the earth. <laughs> Let me tell you a ghost story more recent and close. A few years ago, I got an email from a student. She came from a family broken by an alcoholic and abusive father, and she wrote, After countless arguments between my parents, countless profanities, and raised voices at myself and my brothers, my father finally moved out. I was 15 when I decided that Christ had failed me. I stopped going to church. I I didn't think there was any way I could be pulled out of the black hole I'd been repeatedly sucked into. But but one Sunday morning, I came to Calvary with my friend's family. And the second I walked in, my heart was whisked away. And I felt an unknown presence beside me. Now here I am, a student at Penn State University who feels more connected with God than before. I continue to thrive in my relationship with Christ every day through song, prayer, community, nature, everyday happenings. Reconnecting myself with God has opened my eyes to new experiences, opened new doors, helped me to forgive my father. I thank him for making me the strong, determined woman I am today. Choosing Calvary was the best decision I ever made. Listen, the change in her life had little to do with Calvary. It wasn't our amazing worship or our compelling community. It certainly wasn't my outstanding teaching. It was, in her words, the unknown presence beside her that whisked her heart away. And that unknown presence was the Spirit of Christ. Jesus had a few ghost stories that were told of him. Starting in Luke 3, 21 to 22, Jesus himself was baptized. And as he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily formed. I don't know what that looked like, but it descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven was heard saying, you are my dearly loved son. You bring me great joy. In Luke 4, 1 and 2, it says, Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led, some translations say, compelled or driven by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. Don't miss the sequence. I think it's important. After his baptism, Jesus was filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. But after his wilderness experience, Jesus was empowered, empowered by the Spirit. This is my working theory for the text. We can be filled with the Spirit and even led by the Spirit, but rarely do we receive the power of the Spirit without spending time in the wilderness. But when we do spend time in the wilderness, and not only spend time, but invest our hearts, 
Listen to what happens in Luke 4. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power, and reports about him spread quickly throughout the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Jesus came back empowered by the Spirit, and something happened in his ministry. Luke 4 tells us he's healing people, delivering them from demonic oppression, preaching up a storm. Matthew 4, 23 through 25 describes it this way. Just imagine you're there. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Do you realize how unusual this was? When, When Matthew talks about great crowds coming from a large region, what he's really saying in a somewhat understated way is, oh my goodness, this is unreal. You know, when you travel through Israel today, it seems like a fairly small area with fairly large cities. Jerusalem, around 800,000. Nazareth, over 200,000. But but in Jesus' day, Nazareth was a, a village of 50 to 100 people. Bethlehem, not much bigger. If a great crowd gathered, it came from all over the country. And, and even though the Jews were religious people in the communities that were big enough to have a synagogue, most of them held no more than 20 to 50 people. In other words, the local rabbis didn't really even draw a crowd. For Jesus, who himself was one of those local rabbis to draw a crowd, man, it never happened. I mean, think about this. When he fed the crowd with a young boy sack lunch, that was probably 15,000 plus people. You might be thinking, so Taylor Swift can draw 100,000 at Beaver Stadium. Maybe, (laughs) but that's with a couple million people living within a few hours drive. And that day with just a few hundred thousand and walking is the main transportation. This would be more like Taylor Swift drawing three or 400,000 people. People are coming from all over the place. 120 miles from Jerusalem, many of them walking days upon days, coming from present-day Amman, Jordan, Damascus of Syria. Whole villages are shutting everything down and coming to see Jesus. People are walking for days to see Jesus. Women are discussing Jesus at the town well. Men are stopping each other on the way to work. Nobody's talking about politics, March Madness, or the economy. On everyone's lips is, so what do you think about this Jesus guy? I'm thinking about heading over to see him. Yeah, yeah, me me too. Something's up. Jesus has gone viral. <laughs> this young rabbi who grew up in a rural town to blue-collar parents, mother a teenager, he spent part of his childhood on the run. He's wanted by government authorities. The rest of his childhood was fairly mundane, pretty tame stuff, learning his father's trade, playing with friends, not all that spectacular. But man, suddenly he's got it. He's on the move. Stuff is happening. Why? This is so key. Why? What's different now? The only thing I can tell you that's different is that Jesus has been filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was refined in battle with Satan. And then coming out of the wilderness, he was empowered by the Spirit. Listen to me. If we need power, neither the Spirit nor the wilderness is optional. It's kind of amazing how many of us Christians today tend to see the Holy Spirit kind of like an option on a new car. Like, of course I want heated leather seats. And in fact, one time I drove a rental that had a heated steering wheel. Yeah, I want that too, but it's optional, right? 
I've driven hundreds of thousands of miles without a heated steering wheel. If I could buy the luxury version, of course, I would want that, but I don't need that. Listen, the Spirit-filled life is not the luxury version of a used-but-reliable car. The Holy Spirit is the engine, (laughs) the engine of the Christian life. Without Him, there's no power. The Holy Spirit is not the afterthought of God. He's not even the plan B version of plan A's failure. Jesus said, this is better. It's better for me to go so that I can give you the Spirit of God. So wait, Jesus said, I I have a lot for you to do, but you can't do it without the Spirit's power. So wait, don't pass go. Till you've received the gift, received my promise of power. I mean, honestly, it should ask, cause us to ask this question, when do I need power? And, and here's my two-part answer. I, don't, I, I think we need power when God's calling exceeds our capacity. When God's calling exceeds my capacity, I need the power of the Spirit. And, and the second part of my answer is God's calling always exceeds my capacity. Listen, if you're not currently a little bit overwhelmed by your lack of resources, if you've never experienced a sense of desperation because of the darkness around you, then perhaps your heart is hard or your soul is blind. But I can guarantee you that God's purposes for your life require more than just the power of your life. God's calling always exceeds my capacity. I need more. I need the power of the Spirit. So perhaps we might find ourselves with this prayer on our lips for the next 24 hours. God, please fill me with the power of your Spirit. God, please fill me with the power of your Spirit. God, I need more. I need more of your Spirit. God, would you fill me with the power of your Spirit? Father, like I prayed in the last episode, I pray again here for each and every one of us listening God, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you empower us by your spirit? We we need to surrender to your spirit. We need to be led by your spirit and guided by your spirit and filled with your spirit. But God, we long to be empowered by your spirit. God, we, we're, we're grateful for all that you've given us. We're, we're grateful for the more that you have for us. God, you are the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask for or even begin to imagine. You are the God who is at work around us right now in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine, at work within us in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. And we just simply say, God, more. Would you fill us with more, more of the power of your Spirit? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.